movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 300 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, episode 300, literally 300 weeks nonstop of us bringing this podcast to you. And this episode is not just the special 300th episode, but it is also the FICO episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that back in the 1950s, when the FICO company came into being, or Fair Isaac and Company, now known as the Fair Isaac Corporation, which is where you get your FICO credit score, the original lowest score that you could possibly get was 300. And with that wonderful bit of depressing news for most of the United States, I of course am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And I'm happy to say that my FICO weekly score is high. Indeed. And not 300. My goal, though, is to have a FICO score of zero. I want to be in a point in my life where I have enough money in the bank that if something were to happen, I could just pay for it. True. Who needs credit? I have money. That would be, that's my goal. And people are like, but Matt, that's crazy. What if you, like, broke your leg? Well, if I have a credit score of zero, that means I've probably got two or three hundred thousand dollars in the bank with which to go and get my leg fixed. Now, I'm not saying don't go out and not have medical insurance. I'm just saying I wouldn't need a credit card for it is all. Well, I mean, I would hope you would have insurance by that time. I'd hope the reason why you acquired a vast amount of money such as that amount, it would be because of a job that you legally had. Oh, sure. Sure. And, and, and don't worry. Drug dealers need insurance, too. And you can still go out and buy your own personal health insurance if you are so inclined. <laughs> no, they don't need Gunshots insurance. They need reassurance. <laughs> oh, yes. How much do you pay for your assurance? Wait, did you just say? No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, assurance. Um. Uh, what? Yeah, I would love to see that conversation go down. Stuart Smalley popping out of nowhere. That's right, <laughs> folks. Weird 90s references from Matt. And SNL. Yeah, that's the guy who's like, I, I like me too. He looks at the, the mirror mm-hmm. of himself. Yeah. yeah, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Yeah. Did you ever watch the movie? He's He's a senator now, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stuart Smalley saves the world. No, well, I mean, he didn't he have to step down because of some kind of allegations towards him like a year or a year oh, and a half ago? Yeah, that's Al Franken. Right, the, Al Franken. Uh, Al Franken. Let's see here. He took Did that he picture actually... where he was like grabbing a woman or like touching a woman. It was obviously a goofy picture. And because she said she didn't appreciate how, you know, what she what he did or how that whole thing was handled, that it was a type of sexual... I can't remember that was like... She called it sexual Mm. harassment, or it was just inappropriate harassment or whatever, and that's why he stepped down. Yeah, Franken resigned January 2nd, 2018, after several allegations of groping were made against him. 
And uh, that is that is true. But yes, I did. Going back to the original point of the whole thing, <laughs> I, I did actually watch Stuart Smalley saves the world. It's a it's really and truly a pretty good movie. It's not as funny as people would think that it would be, but at its core is a truly dysfunctional family that through it all actually loves one another, and they don't they don't solve anything. Except reaffirming, in the parlance of Stuart Smalley, that family is, generally speaking, the most important thing. Now, granted, there are always exceptions that prove the rule, but for the vast majority of us, family is the most important thing. And I really liked the message of that film. I I don't know. Maybe it's because I have a screwed up family. I don't know. But I like that movie. (laughs) And it bombed at the box office because of this little un, unknown movie called Dumb and Dumber that opened, I believe, the same week <laughs> weekend as Stuart Smalley saves the world. But oh, I'm I'm pretty sure it was planned to open against Dumb and Dumber, so that this way they could blame it on being opened against Dumb and Dumber instead of it just being a terrible movie. Maybe they should have opened its pat against Dumb and Dumber instead, since that was <laughs> Jesus Christ. By uh, far the best yeah. movie in the SNL films canon. Not. Well, and that's what's so funny is it's it's really all Mike Myers' fault. I think this is ultimately why Mike Myers is almost universally hated in Hollywood, it's not because he was a jerk and it's not because he was hard to deal with. It's because he gave us Wayne's World, which then thought to the studios, the studios then thought, wait, let's turn all the SNL skits into movies. And that is what they did. So instead of having good movies and great sketch comedy that could turn into something useful, we then got Ladies Man, It's Pat, Superstar, Stuart Smalley saves the world, the night at the Roxbury, all of these terrible, terrible, terrible SNL movies. Well, to be fair. And and, and it's all on the back of Wayne's World. Superstar and and a night at the Roxbury, they're not great movies, but they're... They're definitely unique in their own way. They definitely have their moments. But I think one totally overlooked SNL movie is uh, the Tim Robbins movie, Bob Roberts, which was a character he created for that SNL. That was an SNL movie? Yeah. Yeah, because he originally played that character in a couple skits on SNL. Huh. Did not realize that. I actually liked Bob Roberts. That's pretty funny. Pretty crazy. Yes. Who knew? Who, Who knew? knew? Apparently Tim did. Tim did, and then Tim Robbins, right? Is that his name? I don't know. Who who plays him? Yeah, and it was also directed by Tim Robbins. And this it was is, kind of at the height indeed. of Tim Robinson's fame when, I mean, God, not too long before he did Bull Durham, Cadillac Man with uh, Robin Williams. So I think this was kind of his more lower-budget experimental film. Well, cool. So why don't we go ahead and jump right into everything we need to get into? I know you said you had something you wanted to talk about, and and then we've got our bonus segment for this week, which is the copycat throwdown of All the Star is Borns, and then, of course, our movie, which is Venom. So Yes, yeah. the 18 hours of A Star is Borns that it comes down to. No here. kidding. And I mean, it really was. It was two hours... 
for the first one because it's 111 minutes so an hour and 51 minutes for the first one two hours and 55 minutes for the second one two hours and 20 minutes for the third one and two hours and 16 minutes for the fourth one a lot of fucking <laughs> stars being born you know I, I thought in physics this shit takes like you know it's like that it yeah. happens really fast and but. a lot of husbands killing themselves too <laughs> It's been a morbid Apparently week, when guys. when a star is born, yeah, when a star is born, a husband commits suicide. I'm not sure what's all up with that. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a couple things I wanted to talk about here at the beginning of the show. Uh, a couple pieces of news, and they're both kind of horrorish related. And I'm not talking about slutty. I'm talking about horror, like the genre. Uh, the first one is via SlashFilm.com. Uh, George Romero left behind a full unreleased movie and 50 unproduced scripts. Uh, This was written by Chris Evangelista, and it says this, There will never be another George Romero, and the filmmaker's death in 2017 left a big hole in the world of movies, but Romero's legacy lives on through his work. But it might continue on into the future thanks to unreleased material, Romero's widow, Suzanne Desrocher Romero, has revealed that the Night of the Living Dead filmmaker left behind around 50 unproduced scripts, as well as a completed film from 1973 that most filmgoers have never seen. We all miss George Romero, the filmmaker who gave birth to the zombie genre and worked outside the Hollywood system nearly his entire career. When Romero died in July of 2017, it was sad to think we'd never see another new film from the director, But now it looks like that might not be true. In an interview with ComicBook.com, Romero's wife dropped the surprising revelation that the late filmmaker left behind a wealth of unproduced scripts and even a complete movie that's never been released. I just realized I kind of rehashed the same wordage there, so I apologize for doing so. George has many scripts. Quote, we have very many scripts that he's written. You just never know what's going to pop up. She said, Road of the Dead is in the works, I think. I think it's sputtered a little bit, but we'll see what happens. But we have a lot. Road of the Dead is a script Romero wrote with Matt Berman, which Berman was supposed to direct. Think of it as Mad Max with zombies, but that's not all. Disrocher Romero added, quote, George was a prolific writer. He loved to write. And we have 40 to 50 scripts that he's written. And a lot of it is very good. He had a lot to say. And he still does. Because I'm going to make sure that he does. It's my mission. End all quotes there. If you want to read up more about uh, both George Romero and his and his works that his wife came across or is planning on releasing, do check out this SlashFilm.com article. George Romero left behind a full unreleased movie and 50 unproduced scripts. Uh, The second piece of news here that I wanted to talk about is via Deadline Hollywood. Richard Dreyfuss says that Jaws re-release with CG Shark upgrade would be huge. This here is written by Jeff Butcher, or Boucher, and says this. Jaws co-star Richard Dreyfuss says the 1975 mega hit could even make a bigger boatload of money if it was re-released today. All it would require is a digital effects team and a killer makeover for the film's infamously clunky mechanical shark. Saying, quote, I think they should do it. It wouldn't be huge, and it would open up the film to younger people, end quote, Dreyfuss said when Deadline floated the idea. 
Quote, Is that blasphemy? No, no, I don't think so. The technology now could make the shark look as good as the rest of the movie. End quote. When Jaws hit theaters, it was a monster success like no other. The Shark Tale was based on the 1974 namesake novel by Peter Benchley, and it seized the imagination of the nation. The movie broke box office records, ushered in the Hollywood era of summer blockbusters, spawned three sequels, and minted the career of a young filmmaker named Steven Spielberg. The filming of the movie, however, was a logistical nightmare for the 27-year-old Spielberg, who likely wondered if this second feature film after Sugarland Express from 1974 would also be his last. The primary issue was a bulky mechanical shark, nicknamed Bruce, that was quite literally sinking the production. The planned 55-day shoot became a 159-day saltwater slog that doubled the movie's planned $7 million budget. It was a sink-or-swim moment for Spielberg, and he responded by delivering a classic through his resourcefulness and budding cinematic instincts. For most of the film's 132-minute running time, for instance, the shark is suggested more than seen, the camera was used to show the shark's point of view, to a tactic that found a powerful complement in the now-legendary score by John Williams. End all quotes there, and that article does continue for a bit longer. Again, if you want to check out more about what Richard Dreyfuss has to say about a possible Jaws re-release with the CG shark, and just more about the history of the making of Jaws in general, check out this Deadline Hollywood article. Richard Dreyfuss says Jaws re-release with CG shark upgrade would be huge. Matt, any comments? about George A. Romero and his unproduced work, should we touch it? And what do you think of Richard Dreyfuss commenting on the possibility of updating the look of the shark in Spielberg's classic film Jaws? As to the Romero stuff, I would say for the most part, it should be left alone, with the caveat that if someone wanted to use a story idea or a part of a script as a basis to jump on and then maybe create their own movie with a, you know, a story credit or original screenplay credit going to Romero, I would say that would be fine because this way you could still kind of use the gravy as it were, you, you, you know, get yourself that, that roux going when you're going to make your gravy and then actually give your you know get your gravy for the meat and potatoes that is the picture and if it fails then it rests on the people who made the movie and not on Romero and if it succeeds then everybody gets to have their day in the sun and they also get to still credit Romero as the original source material and that's pretty much where I feel it should remain there in terms of the shark I, I can appreciate where Richard Dreyfuss is coming from, but all I have to, to say to you are three words, original trilogy re-release. That's all I'm saying. If you liked those, then God bless you. And if you're like the majority of people who are like, what the fuck were they doing? That's probably what you're going to end up with if you try and put a CGI shark into a 1975 fucking movie. Yeah, I agree with you for the most part. I would like to see maybe a book of these unreleased scripts. Just maybe publish it in that capacity. 
We don't need oh, to make go. them. I, I think maybe reading them, just unproduced screenplays, uh, would be because then what you'd have people either reproducing George Romero's look, you know, or try to reproduce George George Romero's look to make these movies, or you know, people aren't going to like that, and people aren't going to like the idea of people taking George Romero's script and making their own movies out of it, you know? So, and as for Jaws, I, I I think if it wasn't as much of a classic as it is, then maybe I can see a little bit of updating on the shark, but there's no, there's no reason for it, I, I don't think. I mean, if you want anything, maybe just release some tests and just put it on a DVD special feature. No need to redo the whole movie. All right, man. Well, let's see. I think we have ourselves a copycat throwdown we need to get to, don't we? That's right. And since it's our 300th episode, we thought we needed to do an epic copycat throwdown. Because it's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it! Stop it! No, no. Seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating. Stop repeating. Right. Oh. Okay. I'm going to kick your ass. ass. Throwdown time. This copycat throwdown features all of the Star is Borns, as we've been alluding to. Not even alluding to, as we've been going on and on about, about how much a Star is Born we've had to watch over the last week. And it turns out for most of us, or for the both of us, it seems like pretty much over the last two or three days. So we've got 1937 versus 1954 versus 1976 versus a 2018's A Star is Born. All of them basically have the same plot structure. We have an aging and fading alcoholic star, either a movie star or a music star, who discovers an hitherto unknown talent in a young girl Actually, not even a young girl, a young woman who is truly that one in a billion that is just able to capture lightning in a bottle and the world loves her. And this is how the movie, you know, and then the movie starts asking questions of what happens between these two star-crossed lovers. And I guess it's just simply best to start at the beginning and... Well, let's start with 1937's A Star is Born. Before you lies the most glamorous city on Earth, Hollywood, California. A city where men and women skyrocket to fame or plunge to oblivion. What happens amid the glamour of such famous gathering places as the Ambassador Pool? The Trocadero on the Gold Coast of the film city. At the Brown Derby, where famous stars meet or in the gay setting of Santa Anita Park. It's all a part of fantastic Hollywood. Hollywood at playtime. Here behind the walls of Selznick International Studio, we see Hollywood at work. A new Janet Gaynor is in the making. A Janet Gaynor never before seen on the screen. Co-starring is Frederick March, more likable, more swashbuckling than ever before. And now we take you behind the scenes. Director William A. Wellman is guiding Janet Gaynor and Frederick March as they will appear in the David O. Selznick Technicolor production, A Star is Born. All right, Freddie, you know you've been after the girl uh, unsuccessfully. So this time must be very tender, very earnest, and very sincere, and rather quiet. 
You all ready, Duke? Ready, my friend. All right, roll him. So are you, lovely. And the whole world, lovely. But don't come to see A Star is Born expecting to find a Cinderella story or a glorification of motion pictures. Instead, you will be shocked by the price that must be paid in heartbreak and tears for every moment of triumph in Hollywood. What I'm here to find out is do I get them or do I get them? Unforgettable scenes of drama, intimate secrets in the lives of the great, bold revelations of how screen careers are ruined come to light in Selznick International's Technicolor production, A Star is Born. The rich human interest story of Hollywood is filled with happiness and despair, joy and tragedy, a crazy quilt of madness, sanity, laughter and tears, the desperate struggle to reach the top and the battle to remain there. Selznick International brings you Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, with a notable supporting cast including Adolf Manchu in the role of a producer. You're not in jail, are you? May Robson. Hello, can you hear me? Andy Devine as an assistant director. Quiet! Quiet! Lionel Stander as a headline-grabbing press agent. And Edgar Kennedy. Oh. They come to you in Hollywood's first true story, rising from the heartaches and laughter of a million men and women. Janet Gaynor and Frederick March in A Star is Born give you a Hollywood the world does not know. They answer for the first time a strange question. What is the cold fear clutching at the hearts of the famous? 1937, as we just said for the umpteenth time, American Technicolor romantic drama film produced by David O. Selznick, directed by William A. Wellman, from a script by Wellman, Robert Carson, Dorothy Parker, and Alan Campbell, starring Janet Gaynor in her only Technicolor film as an aspiring Hollywood actress and Frederick March in his Technicolor debut as a fading movie star who helps launch her career. Support cast features Adelphi Menju, Mae Robson, Andy Devine, Lionel Stander and Owen Moore. So what we have here is basically a North Dakota farm girl, Esther Victoria Blodgett. Isn't that just a great name? Esther Victoria Blodgett, of course, played by Janet Gaynor, yearns, she desires greatly to be a Hollywood actress. Her grandmother, though the rest of her family kind of thinks that she's foolish, her grandmother wants for her to at least go out and and attempt to achieve her dream and gives her her savings and says, go off to Hollywood, make it happen. Of course, she immediately lands in Hollywood and there is a there's a poster on the wall when she first shows up at, I think it's Paramount. And they are literally putting up, they have on a poster there. It's, it's like male extras, something like 7,000 and female extras, something like six or 7,000 and child extras like 1600. And so total extras, 16,000 something or other extras every day and it says that we have two-thirds more extras every day than we can use and this is what poor little esther is facing as she walks in but she very quickly makes a makes a friend in an assistant director and who's a very very nice guy um and so he eventually gets her a job as a waitress at a at a little Hollywood shindig. And it is at this Hollywood shindig that she ends up inadvertently meeting Norman Maine, played by Frederick March. Now, we've already established through some earlier shots and setup stuff that Norman is a big shot Hollywood guy who is a drunk. And yet he loves, he just, it's like love at first sight for him. 
And he just is captivated by young Esther and basically decides on the spot, you need to get a screen test and I'm going to see that you get a screen test. And he's basically using the last bit of capital that he has with the studio to get this girl a screen test. And of course, it actually turns out pretty well. He ends up doing the screen test with her and she lands the and so she lands a contract player part through a mishap in a conflict of interest in scheduling for the actual leads of a different movie a little while later we get to pair up esther and norman who has now esther's been renamed vicky lester and so she she's now vicky lester and they end up teaming together to do a movie when the movie goes to preview everyone is like wow holy crap this this vicky lester is amazing and everybody is at the same time saying poor norman maine he's completely wasted and out of his league what's the point of him even being in the movie and it's from that point on that we see these two characters who clearly come to love one another rising to the top which is vicky lester as the other one falls to the wayside and despite everything that norman has going for him the demons that he has that causes him to be a drunk will he be able to overcome them and that's kind of the question that is asked of the original movie and and technically it's asked in the subsequent remakes but by the time we're definitely definitely if you didn't figure it out by the time the 1954 had rolled around you definitely already know how this love story goes by the time you're watching 1976 and so the question is asked can this man meet his de- beat his demons if he can great if not is vicky strong enough to save him is vicky strong enough to be there and still be herself but more importantly will she go down with the ship That is where this movie goes. Now, I like this movie. This is, I, I mean, you guys, if anybody is following me on Twitter, then you already know that my two favorites are 2018 and 1954. But they're, and those are tied on the score level. So, if, you know, so I guess we could say that 1937 is at least my second favorite, right? The thing with this movie is that while it is definitely well acted and well shot, very well shot, because this is definitely your proto, it's not even prototypical, it is the prototype Hollywood movie. This is where you're really starting to see the idea of behind the scenes Hollywood. It's where you get movies like Singing in the Rain, movies like that, that really focus on the behind the scenes aspect. And they're not the only movies to do so, but this is where you really kind of get that script style shot. You get the shot style is, is this way. The idea that you've got the handlers and stuff, even like when we recover, when we covered either, I think it was in 2016, hail Caesar. And you see the kind of the dying life of the, of, of the end of the golden age of the studio system. And that's what Josh Brolin is. So you, even to that degree, we can see the template for it being laid out here. And it does it very, very well. I mean, it's, it did it so well. That's, this is what everyone emulates. So it's got a lot of things going for it, but in its desire to showcase 
the tragedy of this love romance and this just absolutely devastated character in Norman Maine, played brilliantly by Frederick March, by the way. You lose a lot of the influence that is needed from the characters in the story to create good supporting casts and good supporting characters. And the chief example of this is Lionel Stander. Now, Lionel Stander plays a character. He's basically the studio fixer and PR head, and his name is Matt Libby. And you, he just basically shits all over Norman Maine, even though he and Norman are rarely ever on screen together. Now, Matt is, again, having to fix all of Norman's problems and making sure he doesn't land in jail and all the stuff like that. So I can see, so you can kind of get at least an idea of why Matt looks at Norman as a, as a thorn in his side, but they don't really have any kind of interactions for you to build off of because when there's this big, huge twist where Act 3 becomes Act 4 and you finally see the tragedy start to set in for Norman's character, Matt just goes the fuck off on him. He's like, I hate you and I, you know, I've never been your friend. I don't know why the hell you would think that anybody would ever like you. You've been nothing but a pain in my ass, blah, 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 blah. Goes off. And this is what, of course, finally drives Norman off the deep end. Matt just kind of comes off as a dickhead. Now, he might have a reasonable bone to pick. And I would contend that he does have a reasonable bone to pick because we've been watching the movie. So we know what kind of guy Norman is. But Matt specifically being like just that hard on the guy, it kind of comes out of nowhere. You've also got this bookend with the grandma. Now, the grandma plays a great role as the catalyst for Esther to be able to go to Hollywood and kind of be the spirit of independence that women didn't have. Women didn't have that voice back then. And especially someone who was born at that time, Mae Robson, who was literally born in 1858. No, yeah, 1858, because I want to say she was about four, three three or four when the Civil War started. I actually looked her up. So this kind of woman did literally did not have the access to life and dreams and fucking voting for most of her life that we're getting to see that Esther has the opportunity to get. So it makes sense that she makes a great catalyst for Janet Gaynor's character to really go out there and get something and really try and make something of her life even to the limited degree that would have that that we would look at it today 81 years ago but then she pops up at the end of the film and she's like now remember the moral of this story is and it just it it doesn't work and it's and it's because they spend so much time focusing on the tragedy of their love story in such a way that it doesn't allow for the supporting cast to truly shine. I am that that's not to say that the movie's not good and it's not to say that the actors and actresses in their supporting roles are poor. They're just the characters themselves are underdeveloped. I would say probably the only exception to that rule would be Oliver Niles played by Adolphe Menjou. He and and it's only because he's a prominent studio head, so he kind of gets to be there as kind of the father figure to both of them and mentor, more mentor really 
than to especially to Esther. He's kind of more of a father figure to Norman. And so yeah, yeah, I would say he's he's there. But the story is great. Again, the Hollywood template is fantastic. The tragedy is real and it's well done. I absolutely give this one a 3.5 out of 5. Now, why not a 4? Why not higher? It's because of those supporting casts. Yes, the love story is there. Yes, the tragedy is there. And again, it's real. But the movie is two hours long. And there's a lot of other little things that are going on besides that. That I don't... Again, we kind of run into the wall where I believe it's aged appropriately. But not necessarily aged well and when you come across pivotal scenes like again like where matt comes down on norman at the racetrack you've got to have more to bolster that stuff than just because it needs to be there for it to happen and so that you can then have greater tragedy between the two main characters so that's where that extra half star gets pulled. Otherwise, I would definitely say it's a four star film. And despite it being a three and a half star movie, I still absolutely say watch it. I think hands down you should watch this movie. Now, maybe not watch them all in a row like Tim and I did, but if you're looking for a great classic movie, you could not go you you could not go wrong with this on a Friday or Saturday night. It'll give a really good reason for you and your significant other to cuddle on the couch. If she gets a little upset or he gets a little upset, then there's extra cuddles and snuggles and maybe it turns into a little bit more Netflix and chill to bring it back to 2018. So three and a half out of five for me. And I, I know we're not technically supposed to rate them, but by God, we've put this much time and effort into them. I'm just giving you ratings. Okay. Um, and then, I don't know, Tim, we're already doing this kind of weird. What do you think about this one? We're already doing this kind of weird. I like it. I thought these films were highly enjoyable, especially the 1937 film. The, the story itself is a cautionary Hollywood tale, almost as old as Hollywood itself because of... Lady Gaga, we are familiar with the most recent remake, which is directed, of course, by Bradley Cooper. And if you are a fan of Barbra Streisand, you should already be familiar with the 1976 film, which was directed by Frank Pearson. And then if you're a fan of Judy Garland or studio-era musicals, you've probably already seen the 1954 film, which was directed by George Cucker. But predating... The 1954 film is the 1937 original, which was directed by David O. Selznick, and a 1932 film, which was called What Price Hollywood, also directed by George Cooker. And that was a film that closely resembled all of the other A Star is Born movies that would eventually follow. What Price Hollywood was a film that was about a young woman making it in Hollywood after meeting an established drunken celebrity. Uh, in the case of What Price Hollywood, it was an established Hollywood producer. As the film goes, there's some tragedy, there's some upset, and yada, 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 and it basically follows the line of all the uh, A Star is Born films. I did not watch that one, but I did a lot of reading into it. If anybody is interested in the complete A Star is Born experience, 
of what I've read and what I've heard, What Price Hollywood is a very good film and definitely worth checking out. And that was from 1932. But the 1937 film plays the most as a cautionary tale, painting the entertainment industry itself in the most cynical of ways as this massive machine that's there solely to eat up impressionable Hollywood dreamers and chewing on them until those dreamers lose their luster and eventually tap out. Once the character of Norman, which of course is played by Frederick March, sacrifices his own life for Vicky, played by Janet Gaynor, to carry on her career, there's this undeniable feeling of sadness that shrouds the path that Vicky chooses to walk down, making, honestly, me, while watching it, making me feel as if Vicky will one day end up just like Norman. And I'm not talking about she might just end up drowning herself off Malibu, like Norman does, but maybe leaving the industry before getting to that point of ending her life by suicide. It was a different feeling at the ending than I felt with any of the other flicks. Because it wasn't a happy sad. Granted, yes, all the other films, the husband kills himself. Spoiler alert, I'm sure if you care to listen to this, you are familiar with the A Star is Born movies. The formula doesn't change all that much. But with the 1954 film, the 1970-something film, and the, 19, and the 2018 film, there's this sense of moving forward and everything will be okay. You, the audience, understands in some weird, twisted way why Norman sacrificed himself in such a way. And it's, it's almost bittersweet. And granted, with the 1937 film, because it is a product of the 1930s, they couldn't relish in the depressing aspect too much. In fact, they rushed through his death, which makes the ending of the 1954 film much more satisfying and gut-wrenching. What I absolutely loved about the 1937 film, which to me makes the ending of the film ominous, is that these characters, they come across as lived in and true to life, which is rather different than a lot of the other character interpretations. Janet Gaynor plays Vicky as somebody who's sweet and hopeful and incredibly innocent. And at the time, especially moviegoers, the whole idea of Hollywood being this mon monstrous machine and awfully ugly was shrouded in innocence and entertainment and, and star-struckedness. And Janet Gaynor plays that character so well who is up against all of these challenges and has to face all of these things head-on because it's not what she's expecting what she was expecting she plays that all so well and so innocently and so sweetly because she just wants to be good and she just always wanted to be a hollywood star what i enjoyed about this film significantly more than most of the other flicks is that i liked how she didn't become a bad person she didn't change all that 
much. There was still that part of her that was grounded in human decency, you know, in, in normal life. You know, she always thought about the other people that were not in the Hollywood system. I could also compare Lady Gaga's characterization in the new film. They were sticking true to humanity and, and what you would hope to see how these people grew. They grew in their careers, not in their smugness. And then you have Frederick March's character of Norman. God, man, he is excellent. I, I loved his frankness and his social drunkenness. I mean, he knew the right thing to say, and he knew the worst thing to say. When he was drunk in public, he was still a charming man, which makes it, when he interrupts Vicky's Academy Awards speech, it makes it that much more gut-wrenching. And especially when she, it pushes her to that breaking point where he actually hits her that much more ghastly. Especially from a film that is a product of 1930s Hollywood, I don't think any of that would have as much of an effect if these characters weren't treated in such a loving, caring, and thought-provoking way. These characters are nuanced. I can't say the same about some of the side characters, but I thought the guy who played the publicist, he was, man, slimy. And what's crazy is that's how Hollywood was back then. We think TMZ and all that shit is bad now. It was so much worse back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So much worse. And I guess that brings me back around to how this movie got made. Even by David O. Selznick, who originally scoffed at the idea of producing a movie that had its own negative take on Hollywood and making films. Because I guess he didn't want that to get out. And still, this movie is a product of Hollywood because... I mean, look how it bookends itself. At the beginning of the movie, it starts off with script pages of the opening of the film. And at the end of the film, it ends with a shot of the, of the last page in the, in the script. You know, so it's very interesting how the film treats itself. Throughout the whole movie, it knows. It knows the viewer thinks, like, God damn, this is not healthy. This is not right. But we have to spin it in a way to where it's still a Hollywood movie so that maybe people would just sit back and go, oh, it's just a movie. This stuff never happens. Au contraire. This movie plays things quite accurately. It was, I keep saying astounding, but I was astounded by the lengths that they went to to really capture all of that while Norman is heading towards his suicide. This is a nuanced film, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I am giving this one a 4.5 out of 5. Part of that 4.5 out of 5 is because of how well it has aged, but most of that goes towards the performances. 4.5 out of 5 for me. Awesome. And I would also like to point out that for the 37 version and the 1954 version, I actually let the kids watch. And they were asking the very same questions at the end of the movie, of the 37 movie. Like, why is everybody jumping up in her face? And why did she pass out like that? And I, so I stopped the movie, pulled up YouTube and was like, all right, let's take a look. And I showed them TMZ stuff today. And I showed them like Michael Jackson trying to leave an airport one time in Japan. I think it was. And the girls, the, their jaws literally dropped, all three of them. They're like, what is wrong with people? 
<laughs> and uh, it really it really helped him to set up for 54. And I, I just, I mean, it really is a thing. People just do not realize what the press and the mobs and what fame really does. But at any rate, we move on to 1954 as A Star is Born. The star is born, and in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. There's Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, all bringing inspired life to a story that only life itself could have inspired. You don't know what it's like to see somebody you love crumble away in front of your eyes bit by bit day by day i i hate myself because i failed to you got it just like you dreamed it oh no i've got more so much more it's a new world i see a new This is a story of a little girl searching, searching, searching. For she knows somewhere there's a someone who's a someone for her. This is a story. All right. Now, in this one, it's directed, uh, this is the 54 American musical film, and it is written by Moss Hart, stars Judy Garland and James Mason, and directed by George uh, Cooker. Hart's screenplay was the adaptation of the original, and uh, then they, of course, turned it into a musical for this film. Now, it should be noted, before I get into plot on this, and kind of explaining the plot a little bit more, there are actual, actually several cuts of this movie. And there was an original cut that was three hours and 16 minutes long. It was the original preview cut that was played for people right before the official premiere. And critics loved it. The people who were watching the preview loved it. They thought it was fantastic. However, Cougar and, uh, oh, Sidney Luft, producer, they knew that there was no way they could get a three hour, a three hour plus movie to go. And so by the time it actually hit the premiere and they were ready for it to, to go into production for 
release, they they trimmed about about 18 minutes or so. They got it down to two hours and 55 minutes. So that was what people saw at the premiere. And then uh, Cooker goes off to Europe to go do another project. And while he's out of the country, the Warner Brother executives were like, hey, you know, if we cut this movie down, we could get another showing out of it. And so instead of four showings a day, we could get five showings a day. So let's see what we can do. And then they cut this fucker down to two hours and 30 minutes, roughly. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, two hours and 34 minutes, 154 minutes. And so Cougar was pissed. And this is the movie that everybody saw, the, the, the really short version. And it did well in the box office. Everybody still loved the movie. And the, the majority of the public was like, wow, great. This is fun. Judy Garland was nominated for an Oscar. So, I mean, this was definitely the studio felt justified. By about 1981, people were really clamoring to see what it was that the original piece was done. And there has, there was a, rest, a restoration that was done. And, uh, Ronald Haver did the, did this. And so he ended up by 1983 re-releasing the two hour and 55 minute version. Unfortunately, even with all of his extensive work and his hunting and the rest and restoration of everything that he could do, they did not have, ev they didn't have all of the, the video and the film, they only had all of the audio. And so there are, there's probably about three and a half, four minutes or so that are actually just production stills and photos that are used to recreate the scenes that are missing. And of course, they still have the original audio. They did, however, put back in like two, for sure, two musical numbers, if not three. And I mean, it really fills out the experience. And this is what's available now on the Blu-ray. They were hoping that when the Blu-ray release came out back in 2009, that it was going to have the full three hour and 16 minute version. Unfortunately, no, it was just this two hour and 55 minute, which is still great. At least it's better than nothing. And supposedly, supposedly word around the campfire is that there is a preservationist that is friends with Liza Minnelli and it is merely rumored that this one guy has the only remaining print of the three hour and 16 minute version so who knows so so you might when you see this movie if you can catch it on blu-ray do so because you'll get the you'll get as close to the to the experience that the director wanted you to have as is possible to get today Moving into the film. Sorry, history lesson over. Now, we are basically recreating the formula here is that it's still the studio system, but now we're in 1954 studio system. And we have George Mason, I'm sorry, James Mason, who's playing Norman Maine, and Judy Garland is playing Esther Blodgett, who, of course, becomes Vicki Lester. And what they've done is they've changed it because obviously it's Judy Garland. They've added musical numbers to it so that you can see that now not only is she a stage actress, but she's an actual singer as well. James Mason discovers her and I, they definitely make Norman a lot more aggressive. He's very much a hands, very handsy, even when he's not drinking. 
He's a very handsy guy. And especially when he is drinking, it goes into overdrive. And he is absolutely ready at the drop of a hat to fight. He's going to push. He's going to try and hit. People have to hold him back. And so they really go into a lot better detail to flesh out Norman to make him someone that it's easy to not like unless you're someone like Esther. And the movie does a great job of giving you time to be with him in the same realm that Esther would be with him so that you can see that there are qualities to appreciate. But by doing this extra fleshing out with Norman, they also do it in such a way that they spend extra time with Matt Libby, who is played by Jack Carson in this film. And so you actually get to see the dynamic that's going on between Norman and Matt as the movie progresses. And you can see the frustration that Matt has been going through for years and how it just makes it so that Matt can never see Norman for the guy that he could be just the pain in the ass that he's been to him. But he's also been a jerk to him too. And so when you see the fleshing out of these characters, which is done a lot better here in this film, it makes it so that you can appreciate what's happening to Norman and Esther more. Moreover, by changing it and putting it into the musical style that was prevalent during the era, the era, you're not just getting a straight remake. They were also very smart, and they show the musical numbers in such a way that it's not just watching Judy Garland sing for the sake of watching Judy Garland sing, because they cleverly choose great songs to showcase the mood of the film, just like you would in, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical of the day, or Singing in the Rain, as I alluded to earlier. All of these things are done really, really well so that the musical flows in such a way that it's not, oh, what a beautiful morning just because it is. No, no, no. There is a time and a place for people to be singing. And when they are, it's generally Judy Garland. And this also bolsters what makes her star shine so bright. It's not just this whimsical, oh, here we go and let's go and be powerful. No, no, no. You're getting to see Vicky grow into the superstar that she is by the end of the film. She doesn't just start out and have this, oh, it's great. Now, it's something that's lesser, it's it's to a lesser degree explored in the 37 version, but it's at least still present there as well. I really, really, really like this movie. This is definitely my, I mean, it's... I, I guess I don't know how else to do it. We're just, it's a five-star movie for me. I absolutely love this film. And one of the reasons that I love this movie is because, like I said, they're fleshing out the characters. They took the time to flesh things out. So that, for instance, Esther is pissed when Norman blows things for her. And she knows that she loves him and she wants the best for him. But she knows that she can't do it. And she also feels at the same time that she hates him. And she says it. And she has a right to be angry. And she truly expresses this anger. And something that's different between 54 and 37 is that the Vicky Lester in the 37 version definitely feels these things. But 
portrays it in a more long-suffering way that makes her more regal and makes it so that she's it's just something that truly is such she's such a star that she's able to rise above everything here they humanize it more and they make it such a wonderful thing because she's so upset as she's registering all these feelings and all this anger but right after she gets mad at him she ends up going back to reshoot a scene that's go tell your long face to get lost or make your long face get lost and of course long face sadness get lost get it out of here and she has to go back and do this refrain one more time after this extremely emotional scene that she's just had where she's pouring her heart out to oliver niles played this time by charles bickford and it's and and it's just amazing to see this play out on the screen in such a way that you that that it's for me more effective than just the dramatic side that you're seeing in the 37 version that's not to say that the 37 version's style is somehow less than it's just that for me i think the music the musicality really drives it home you don't know what it's like to watch somebody you love crumble away bit by bit day by day in front of your eyes and stand there helpless love isn't enough I, I thought it was I thought I was the answer for Norman but love isn't enough for him and I'm I'm afraid of what's beginning to happen within me because sometimes I hate him I hate his promises to stop and then the watching and waiting to see it begin again I hate to go home to him at night listen to his lies well my heart goes out to him because he tries, he does try. But I hate him for failing. I hate me too. I hate me because I failed too. I have. I don't know what's going to happen to us, Oliver. No matter. How much you love somebody? How do you live out the days? <laughs> Again, knowing what I know, I when you watch these movies, especially as someone who is into the history of things and loves the actors and actresses behind it, you got to understand that Judy Garland was thirty-two years old when this movie came out, and. This is the Blu-ray cut, so everything's been restored. And you can really see the aging that is happening to her because of the drugs and the alcohol. And I know Tim will probably have something to say about that as well because he had informed me of something that I thought was pretty interesting as well. And so you can already see the aging on her. And it is just phenomenal to watch her be at this pinnacle in her career because again she was nominated for academy award for best actress for this performance 
And to know that she's literally struggling with this in real life and acting and putting on a show at the same time that she portrays a character who's watching the love of her life go through the exact same thing that Judy herself is going through in real life. And it's, <laughs> I was joking with Tim before. It's like, you know, and an inception was born. This, it's so incredibly moving when I watch this, when I watch this movie. And I, I truly, truly was moved watching this movie. I was, you know, glassy eyed and everything as I watched this movie. And James Mason definitely brought an agony to Norman Maine that was not portrayed as well by Frederick March. It's again, not a slam on him because it's a different style. It's a different way of, of acting and it's a different take. And of course it's, 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 it's 17 years before. And the torture that Norman is going through, I, I mean, God, you, you, you feel for him, even though you know what's going to happen, and you know that he's making a, the wrong decision, even if he feels he's making it for the right reasons. It just it just weighs on you, man. It weighs. It weighs on you. And I, again, this movie is God. It's so amazing. I give this one five stars. Tim, I I know that. It's not a five-star movie for you, but I would love to hear what you have to say. What do you got? I wish I can find that article that I came across a couple days ago regarding the making of this film and how Judy Garland's appearance changed because it has been reported that she often called in sick to work and just wouldn't show up. And that's one of the reasons why the budget ballooned to, like, the grossly amount of $5 million. I know that doesn't sound a lot now, like a lot now, but back then a $5 million budget was pretty hefty. But she was addicted to alcohol, <laughs> as one could be addicted to alcohol. She, or I guess I should say she was dependent on alcohol. I believe she ended up dying of barbiturates, and I'm pretty sure that's what she was on during the making of this film. I think that barbiturates was something that she had been struggling with using for many, many years, and it made her gain weight, lose weight, it gave her wrinkles, it gave her dark splotches on, you know, under her eyes, on her face. Apparently, throughout the movie, you can notice maybe more makeup caked onto her, maybe her outfits were designed a little bit differently to cover up maybe some of that weight gain or they were designed in such a way to make her look like she had maybe more weight in certain areas. So it's honestly a very tragic story once you look into the making of the film, especially if you know where Judy Garland would end up 14, 15 years down the road. I appreciate and enjoy this movie more so now after watching the 1937 film because I haven't seen the 1937 film since I was a kid and I haven't seen the 1954 film uh, since college-ish. So it's been quite a while and I see Judy Garland in more pain. I see her character in more pain in this version. In fact, it's crushing to see Norman screwing up you know, because she ends up blaming herself for his screw-ups. 
and it adds just that much more weight to her characters. Because this film was made in the 50s, they were able to relish more in the tragic aspect that comes about during the ending of the film. It really is heartbreaking to watch. I only wish that they could have taken this last act and in some way melded that together with the rest of the 1937 flick, because I just got tired of the musical numbers and then the length of the film. I think if the movie was a little over two and a half hours and there were maybe condensed musical numbers, very much like how the other films that are to follow handles their music numbers. The concert footage, I guess the performances, kind of acts as montage music. You know, just to give you an idea how during that point of time, because it never says, oh, it's 10 years later, it's five years later, it's two years later, it's this many months later. Through the songs, you get an idea of where their relationship is. And the only way that you know where her and James Mason relationship is in the 1954 film is through the, her, the status of her celebrity, which is all fine and everything. But when she is a singing starlet, we just don't need to see all of these songs, you know, in musical numbers played out in front of us, especially when the songs really aren't all that great. And the Put Away the Sad Face song does have meaning. I could be absolutely wrong, but that might be one of the only songs, other than that ending heartbreaking song that she sings in the Shrine Auditorium, that could be one of the only songs that actually has significant weight in the film when it comes to characterizing a situation or, or shedding more light on the characters. Also a common thing that happens throughout these movies, uh, there is the male leads drive to suicide. And there's also the male leads line of, I just want to look at you again. All of them say this at one point or another. The one moment or actually the only time that I think has the most weight and has the greatest effect. Because you know, you know exactly where he is taking himself. I mean, it doesn't matter if you've seen all the other movies before, but you know exactly where he's going to go. Because you see the building blocks of his thought process of the only logical direction is towards suicide. And in the 1954 version, you see this played out absolutely spot on there. I have no issue at all with the way James Mason characterizes and embodies that entire decision and an emotional baggage. It's just wonderful. And so when he looks at her and says, I just want to, he calls out her name and she looks back at him. He says, I just want to look at you again. It's incredibly heartbreaking because you know, when she leaves and then he goes outside, he's not coming back. And you know he's doing it because he feels like that is the right thing for him to do. Because it can't, I mean, he could try leaving her. She won't let him leave her. Also, he couldn't even do that. He couldn't leave her and live to know that she's out having her own career and with somebody else. And he is just a faded star. What makes the ending moments of him killing himself much more powerful is that the sun is setting and it's almost like the fading star, the star who is no more, is going off into the sunset because his life is over. 
absolutely beautifully handled. The music is not overpowering. You hear much of just the wind blowing, the waves hitting the shore, and it's just absolutely calming and beautiful and ominous. And then you have Judy Garland's reaction to all of this, and that is just heartbreaking. I mean, just that one suspended shot of her crying and mourning her loss, absolutely heartbreaking. And then you had that beautiful song at the end where uh, she's singing in the Shrine Auditorium, and that is where she states that she is Miss Norman Maine. That, again, is just another kind of stake-piercing-the-heart moment that just really gets you going, and it's just a beautiful last act. And the last thing I'll say is that both the 1937 and 1954 film do great jobs at showing the accurate effects of fame and publicity on these up-and-coming stars. And again, the 54 version has the better final act, and Judy Garland gives an outright heartbreaking performance, especially seeing who she is now surrounded by without Norman there to be her crutch. I mean, she's surrounded by manipulation. Again, you know, very much like Vicky from the first film, from the 1937 film, you are just not sure where she's going to end up. But you know she's going to make the best of it. And you know for a fact it's not going to end up as depressing as as Norman's life. But I'm going to give A Star is Born 54 a 4 out of 5. It's still a very good film, worth watching. It's just a little too long. Well, then now we jump 22 years forward for 1976's A Star is Born. In the world of rock music... John Norman Howard was once the best, but he was burning out. Until he met Esther Hoffman, who wanted more than success. They believe that strange was a word she for wanted love. Well, that is my turn. Oh, I want to marry you. Don't you want to? That's not the point. So do I, so we should do it together. Look, I never thought I'd get married again. You'd be lucky to have me. I now pronounce you man and wife. A star is born. I don't want to do this to you anymore. Well, then fight for me. Because if you keep walking, I'll hate you. With one more look at you, and I'll hate you forever. I want. I love you, Esther. Barbara Streisand. 
Chris Christopherson. A Star is Born. Right. 1976 American musical romantic drama film about a young singer played by Barbara Streisand who meets and falls in love with an established rock and roll star played by Chris Christopherson only to find her career ascending while his goes into decline. This one, of course, is directed by Frank Pearson, produced by John Peters, and also stars Gary Busey, for whatever it's worth. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Now look. I realize that Barbara Streisand was top of her game when this movie came out. I, be- I also understand that Chris Christopherson is a hell of a songwriter in his own right. And while I'm not the biggest fan of his voice, absolutely not trying to take away any of the, the, the realism and the grit that he sings with and that he brings to his music, nor ignoring all of his real-life music success as well. Again, hell of a songwriter. And for those of you who are like, wait, Chris Christopherson is a, is a songwriter? Oh, yes, big-time music artist, songwriter, and one of his very, very early hits, Me and Bobby McGee. Yes, that's right. You heard it there first. Anyway, my problem with this movie is not that it showcases the music side of the of things instead of the movie side. As a matter of fact, I thought that was a very nice, fresh change because it allows a whole different dynamic. I also don't mind the idea of watching the rowdy concert when you get to see kind of the idea behind the rock and roll concerts of the 70s and the aesthetic that that brings. And also in 70s film, where again, you kind of get the idea of things maybe taking their time to a certain extent. And also that grit and realism that is really and truly only found in 70s cinema. Nope. No problem with with any of that. My problem with this movie is that it completely denies the love story in favor of concert footage. Now, unlike Tim, I, I fully disagree that this movie does a good job of showcasing shorter music scenarios. They are playing full-on music songs only for Barbara Streisand. And they are doing it in such a fashion that she's she's she has nowhere to go. She's already the pinnacle. It's literally watching Barbara Streisand perform on stage. You're just watching concert footage of Barbara Streisand, who then just says she is someone else. Um, she says she says you know she's Esther Hoffman when she comes off stage, but it's just like watching Barbara Streisand the whole time. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not the idea that I mean it's called The Star Is Born for a reason. But this isn't a matter of someone with natural talent and raw ability that has that certain extra something that gets them beyond the discovered stage, which is, you know, what John Norman Howard has, again, played by Chris Christopherson. You still have to have somewhere to go. And you get to see those struggles in Judy Garland's character as well as oh my gosh um janet gainer 
they are not this amazing actress right out the gate. They're, she's, you know, Judy Garland is not this amazing singer right out the gate in terms of being able to perform. Sure, of course, she's awesome, but she has to find that they both have to find that extra something within themselves that lets them grow. And that's what sets them truly on the path to eclipsing their, their husband. That does not happen here. You're literally just watching Barbra Streisand on stage. And it's, and so I'm not wanting to sit through two hours and 20 minutes of concert footage with mediocre acting at best. I'm sorry. This is not Streisand's best work. I've seen Yentl. I've, you know, I've seen Meet the Parent, Meet the Fockers. I mean, so I've, I've seen Barbra Streisand. Prince of Tides, Prince of Tides. Now that's Barbra Streisand in full acting mode. Holy crap. That you want to see Barbara Streisand acting, you watch Prince of Tides. This is not that. This is just Barbara Streisand being Barbara Streisand pretending to to have a different name. And it shows. Also, everything is so completely stilted when it comes to trying to move the story forward. There's no real rush. You, yes, Chris Christopherson's character is self-destructive. Um, okay, not really any more than any other rock and roller you've probably heard of in this time frame. You think Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath, you can think very, very early Iron Maiden, obviously, because this is 76. Iron Maiden's not going to be until like 78, 79. But you get the idea. There's not really anything that showcases something phenomenal to the story itself they just kind of like decide that they have this love at first sight chemistry and i don't see it it i don't feel it it did not resonate with me also we have to we have to put in different aspects of the characters from the studio system in the previous two films and again the key character here is matt libby now, in this version, we have DJ Baby Jesus, played by M.G. Kelly, who is just this completely overbearing asshole from the get-go who doesn't like him and never has liked him, but doesn't give any real reason for it and just pushes John until he gets pissed at him. And then now it's like, oh, see, I was justified in all my hate. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Also, we've got this big, huge buildup at the end of the, that goes to the end of the movie. Clearly, if we haven't figured it out by now, the poor bastard that our heroine falls in love with offs himself at the end of the movie. In this film, in my opinion, it is not clear that he does it on purpose. I, I think you could certainly argue it. I think you could certainly argue it because he starts off his day with his beer and gets in his Ferrari and goes driving off in mountainous roads at too high a speed. And in, and in this one, he he dies by a car accident. Well, I, I'm not I'm not convinced that he did it on purpose. And I don't know if that was an artistic decision. I, I, I don't know if it is. Uh, I, I just don't know. 
I'm not convinced that it's that it's intentional, which changes the dynamic of the tragedy that makes this movie that's supposed to make the movie itself compelling. And then there's the immediate aftermath where Esther has this, you know, she's cradling his head in her arms. Oh, no, don't go. Please don't go. Get him a blanket. And it's not, again, I, there's no way to give yourself a proper way to invest in this thing for the payoff to, to resonate. And the whole time, and then we just immediately jump back and now it's Barbra Streisand on stage again. Let's have another Barbra Streisand song. Again, I'm not saying that Barbra Streisand's a bad performer by any stretch of imagination. I just don't think this movie is anything other than a vanity project for Streisand. It's just watching Streisand concert footage, um, interspersed with a little bit of Chris Christopherson concert footage that is intentionally tanked so that you have more of a plot device with bad acting and stilted scenes with no clear direction. It's not good. Guys, I'm sorry. This is my absolute least favorite, and I give it a two. So, Tim, jump in here and save this movie. I believe in you. I give it a 1.5 out of 5. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I'm dead serious. Wow! Oh, my God. <laughs> Yay! Vindication. <laughs> I guess I didn't mean to say that every other movie has of these movies has more condensed performances because you're absolutely right. This film has long performances and the songs are not good. In fact, the movie is incredibly dated. It feels like you are actually watching a product of the 1970s. The music is a product of the 1970s. The performances are inspired by performances of the 1970s. Everybody was playing characters and they weren't playing people. That's honestly all I have to say about this movie. It felt like she was more of the relationship instigator. It felt like he was more of just being an asshole than he was being a misunderstood alcoholic who was actually suffering because of this disease. And it felt just more of like that was just his personality. He's an asshole. He's kind of a dick. And that, but then again, he has like this tenderness and some of this, this sweetness, but it never comes across as honest, therefore never fully works. I couldn't see what she saw in him at all either. I mean, I, I don't know. I, all those mushy 1970s, smoky looking montages. There are a couple of those throughout the movie. It just reminded me too much of Endless Love, where you're supposed to just accept the relationship because you're being told to accept the relationship. And when that happens, at the time it might work out because you're being distracted by the music and things you like of that era, but that doesn't necessarily ever age well at all. Because something that's a product of the 1970s doesn't survive as being a product of the 1980s or the 1990s or the 2000s. It just doesn't. You need more of that human connection. That's where all the other movies, to an extent, succeed and that where this one fails. So 1.5 out of 5 for me. Oh, man, I'm just so ecstatic that you... <laughs> That you did not like this movie either. That you liked it even less than I did. <laughs> Surprise! Oh, it is my yay! early birthday gift to you. 
Oh God, I'll I'll take it. I will take it. I will rub it all over me and just accept it into my body. That's awesome. All right. Well, that leaves us with 20. <laughs> There's an image for you guys. All right. <laughs> that leaves us with 2018's A Star is Born. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Takes a lot to change, man. Hell, it takes a lot to try. You know, man, in the old days, I always knew, like, you were going to do something, that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're gonna do. We come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here, no. come on, here we go. Look at me. All you gotta do is trust me. Yeah, again, 2018 American musical romantic drama film produced and directed by Bradley Cooper in his directorial debut, also written by Cooper, Eric Roth, and Will Fetters. Uh, now we're following a hard-drinking musician played by Cooper who discovers and falls in love with a young singer played by Gaga. Uh, now you also have a supporting cast of Andrew Dice Clay, which I was I discovered him, I knew him, I'm like, oh my god, that's Andrew Dice Clay, and Jen was like what holy shit because we went and saw this together we did a date night uh she was really interested in this version of the movie and even though i could not convince her to watch any of the other versions we we did go and see this together um so so this movie so here we have jackson maine is our is our singer and then Allie is the uh is our esther in this in this version of the movie now what i like uh, what i really really liked about this movie on the whole is the blending of the elements from the previous three movies in a very very effective way you've got Great callbacks to the original script using particularly particular key lines that are able to tell you where they're at in the movie. Just, I mean, and, and again, great throwbacks for people who have seen the other movies and something that is just cleverly written and well delivered for those who are not familiar with the previous three movies. And also something that is done here is that for the first time we see we see a version of Maine again we have Jackson Maine this time it was Norman Maine in the first two movies so we've got Jackson Maine 
And for the first time, we're actually seeing a man who is not broke. We don't, we see a guy who's, and I mean, and I don't say, and I, and keyword is not broke. In the previous three movies, they're running into financial trouble. And these are things that are adding to the litany of problems that feed into their demons. Here, we have someone who's just had a shit-tastic fucking life. He was born to a mom who passed away either in childbirth or very, very shortly after when she was 18 and his dad was 61. His dad dies when he was 13. He was raised by his brother, who is played by Sam Elliott in this film. And Sam Elliott is 72. Bradley Cooper is 37, I think. Sorry, 43. I apologize. He's 43. So you can see a 30-year difference there. And he's got a lot of other issues that feed into his drinking. But what's costing him his music in this version of the film is tinnitus. Due to all of... I mean, he's been doing concerts for at least 20 years. And that is the driving force. He cannot reconcile the idea that he's losing his music. And that, combined with a shitty life, is what's feeding his demons in this film. Gaga plays Allie. And again, we see a girl who has confidence in herself and knows that she has a talent within her that is worthy of discovery but it's not been sculpted yet. And so the very first time we see her perform, it's truly a performance. She's made up. She's got an outfit on. She's got fake makeup all over the place, pretend eyelashes, her hair's painted, and she's doing a fantastic job. You would think that, wow, she's just a born performer. But again, it's a performance. She's not doing her own music. And she's in a drag club. And the, and they're letting her perform in the drag club because she used to work there and she's friends with everyone. But there's something there. There's something waiting to be discovered. And I'm sorry, there is a very early shot in this film. The cinematography is absolutely fucking outstanding. Um, Matthew uh, Libatique is the cinematographer. And I will say that he is also someone who has worked with Darren Aronofsky several times. So all the way up to and including Mother from last year. So this guy definitely knows his shit. And Bradley Cooper scored the gold mine by landing this guy. The, there's an opening shot. No, not an opening shot. There's a shot that is established right when Allie and Jackson first truly lay eyes on one another. And she's in her middle of her performance and she lays that lays back down on the bar and she looks over at Jackson. And I mean, it is just a panned center shot straight up close on her face. And you can just see everything in her eyes. I got to say, by the way, I did not know that Lady Gaga could act. The only thing I'd ever seen her do outside of her music videos and concert stuff was American Horror Story, and I wasn't really impressed. So the fact that she is pulling this performance off was like, what the fuck? Wow, that was amazing. And everything is just said in her eyes. 
and it is immediately captivating. It's captivating to you, and you're looking at this in POV of Jackson. And even in his drunken stupor, he's just like, holy shit. He knows he's on to something. And so her friend leads him to the back so that he can meet her. And he didn't ask, and that's also something, is that he does not immediately pursue her, but he also doesn't let the opportunity slip away to to pursue her as soon as it's presented to him. They are able to bond in this one and then of course they end up moving forward and you're and now when she comes out on stage eventually and she's driven driven out on stage you can see the sparks you can see the seeds of what's going to make her this amazing performer as she starts to sing her own music but she has to discover herself and she discovers herself using Jackson as an anchor and it's interesting because she knows from the get-go how fucked up Jackson is. And yet she chooses to go with him. Jackson is using her not as an anchor, but as the rope that's going to lift him out of the mire. And yet he can't seem to get past his own issues enough to appreciate that she's willing to lift him. But unlike, but using Jackson as an anchor, just like any, just like an anchor, it's going to weigh you down. And if you're not careful, it will pull you down. And that's what is, and that's what's so wonderfully and dynamically explored in this version of the movie. And coming off of 1976, I mean, it makes it even better. But the music is also so incredibly powerful and so well done. I mean, you've got, for example, one of the earliest songs in the film that is done is Bradley Cooper gets up on stage and is singing for the drag queens. And he does uh, just a little bit of a, of a ditty that he plays in acoustic form only called Maybe It's Time. And Bradley Cooper's really singing. By the way, he took a year of singing lessons so that he could do this uh, before he got into this so he could do the movie. And, I mean, you, you you see in the lyrics, so you have things like, nobody knows what waits for the dead. Some folks just believe in the things they've heard and the things they've read, yet nobody knows what waits for the dead. There's other lyrics that, like, one of the big uh, versions of it is the is this song called Shallow. And it's um, the the... The, the head of the, the chorus line is, I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in, I'll never meet the ground. And as you watch this, you see the depths to which one can fall without ever hitting rock bottom. And even though you've always got, they've always got this buildup in all the movies. In the first two movies, it's the Academy Awards. In the, in the, in the last two movies, it's the Grammys. And of course, our Norman Maine's character, Jackson Maine in this, in this version, has to, uh, make a fool of himself in front of everybody. And I mean to tell you, of all the versions, this was the only one that literally made me cringe. And it not because it was overdone and not because it was misplayed, but because it was done 
so perfectly that the only way you could cringe it, like at one point you're watching it and they're like, oh wow, Johnny Depp sounded like this at an award show once. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember when another actor or actress or or some celebrity was making a fool out of themselves at some award ceremony and and then all of a sudden it, Cooper takes it to the next level and you're just like, holy shitballs. And you, and you think that that's rock bottom. But it's not. And I will not spoil the end of this movie because I want you to see it. Even though clearly you know the formula of the film, the way that this movie is uses foreshadowing in cinematography, uses foreshadowing in dialogue, it uses foreshadowing in the songs, everything gets to click in its own way and its own time for you. And I could not go to sleep last night. We, I, I tweeted out about the movie when I got home from the movies. Uh, it was probably around midnight or so. And I couldn't go to sleep. I thought about this movie. I, I was laying in bed. I was trying to go to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep. I got up at one and I just started looking into the movie and looking more behind the scenes, looking more at the soundtrack and looking at comments and threads online and it was after three o'clock and i'm and i was trying i was like man i gotta go to bed i gotta go to bed and i was still thinking about it and today we were listening to the soundtrack in the car when we were going out to lunch with the fam and this movie has just i mean it's it's such a powerful movie and i would argue it's the best this one gets a five star for me and i guess i'll tell you which version is apps is actually the best when we get there but man this movie kept me thinking and it's it is also incredibly moving uh, i i personally see nominations out the fucking ass for this movie i don't know if they're gonna win but i would bet dollars to donuts that Best original song, best actress, best actor, best screenplay, best director, best picture. Easily, those six will be nominations that will be had for this movie. And as far as I'm concerned, they will all be well-deserved. Five stars on this movie. And I guess, Tim, what do you got? And then I guess when you're done with this recap, then we'll decide which one is the one that gets to be the favorite. Sure. You pretty much nailed everything I wanted to say right on the head. The only two things that I will add is that I appreciated how this movie touches with sensitivity on mental health. And what made the Barbara Streisand film not work really as much. And I really didn't talk about this during my review. I couldn't really buy her as this character, as the young woman who is not already a star becoming one. I couldn't buy a Barbara Streisand playing that character. I don't know if because she was too old, because she was out of touch. I think she's a very fine actress, but I think she is a Hollywood actress. And I, I just didn't buy her in the role. Now, Lady Gaga, who's been around for the better part of 10 years now, like superstar status, 
for the better part of 10 years now. I completely bought her as this character. She did an excellent job. She didn't overperform. She didn't underperform. She did everything just right. I love the film. Despite a couple issues I had, I'm going to end up with 4.75 out of 5. So then here we are, folks. We are now at the deciding time. Which one wins our copycat throwdown? 1970, uh, 1937, 1954, 1976, made movie is the 2018 version but that is not the winner for me because hey it's our show it's it's our segment and we can do whatever the fuck we want i have to give the edge to 54 and it's because as much as 2018 really caused me to think i mean it made me think about my life it made me think about a lot of things it's weighed on me in in a really good way i can't unknow what i know and i joked about you know an inception is born out of the 54 version but at the end of the day 2018 is just a movie and 1954 was judy garland's life and i and it's an and intentionally or not it truly is an allegory for her life and knowing the devastation and the havoc that was wreaked upon her, her whole life and seeing that played out in such an interesting and dynamic way against the studio system that did it to her makes it more real for me, makes 54 more real to me. And that is why I give the edge and I mean just the the razorest thin of margins. It'd be like a fifty point one to forty nine point nine goes to fifty goes to the nineteen fifty four version of A Star Is Born, um, and that is where we stand for myself. Tim, I give it to two thousand eighteen because it did everything for the most part perfectly. It updated everything. In a refreshing way, it mirrors the current entertainment atmosphere, the current inter- entertainment styles, I guess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to me, that just outweighs everything that all the other movies, especially the 1976 movie, <laughs> has done. It's what the 1976 movie tried to do, you know? It, yes. it tried. Yes. It tried to make a movie that, again, was the product of the 70s. Or, or that mimics entertainment in the 70s, but it did it in, in all the wrong ways. 2018 does it in all the right ways. I love the 1937 film, but 2018 takes the cake, and I want to see it do well, especially when it comes time for award season. Oh, yeah. I'll be rooting for it big time. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our very, very, very long bonus segment, Copycat Throwdown. Uh, Next week, we are not going to have a bonus segment because uh, we actually have six movies to cover for next week. Uh, We're doing some classic universal werewolf flicks to keep with our Halloween theme of werewolf movies. We're going to be doing 1945's House of Dracula, 1946's She-Wolf of London, and one of my personal favorites. 
favorite comedy horror comedies, especially of the era, 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. The actual, uh, and so then that's going to bring us to uh, the movie of the week for our movies. So I guess, should we go ahead and do that segment real fast? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> or I guess technically the movies we've been doing, but this week's movie for the segment is 2018's Venom. I'm Eddie Brock. I'm a reporter. I always seem to find myself questioning something the government may not be looking at. I found something really bad. And I have been... Who's that bad? Who's that bad? Look around at the world. What do you see? A planet on the brink of collapse. Human beings are disposable. But man and symbiote combined. This is a new race, a new species. A higher life form. What do you want from me? You'll find out. I'm so sorry. We cannot just hurt people. Look into my eyes, Eddie. The way I see it. We can do whatever we want. Do we have a deal? Eyes, lungs, pancreas, so many snacks for a little time. That power. It's not completely awful. You have no idea how much you're scaring me right now. Eddie, cooperate. And you just might survive. Guys, you do not want to do this, trust me. We will eat both your arms and then both of your legs, and then we will eat your face right off your head. You will be this armless, legless, faceless thing, won't you? Rolling down the street. Eighteen American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name. Now there have been several movies called Venom, but they're thrillers or horror movies. This is that's why I'm specifically making sure we clarify it's 2018, even though most people are going to know what we're talking about. Hey, things will happen down the road. Who knows? Uh, this one here is just uh, directed by Ruben Fleischer, and it is starring Tom Hardy, Michelle Williams, Riz Ahmed, uh, Scott Hayes, and Reed Scott. Now. Here's here's where I land on this movie. There's a lot of things this movie does right on an individual basis. Like the interplay between Tom Hardy's character of uh, Eddie Brock and then the, the idea of Venom. By the way, Venom is voiced by Tom Hardy. Uh, they just, he kind of changes his voice up a little bit. And then, of course, they run it through a modulation so that it doesn't really sound like him. But he is doing the voices for, he's doing the voice of Venom. And he's also Eddie Brock. I like the idea of using, I liked, 
I like the idea that they had to create the interplay between Eddie Brock and Venom. I don't think it's executed very well, again, as a fan of the comics from way back in the day. Uh, I actually went over, I had a buddy of mine named uh, named Wes, well, he's, he's still named Wes, and I actually got to, he, he had a huge comic book collection as compared to me, and I actually got to read, like, first appearance of Venom way back when, so to give you an idea. And so it it doesn't match the comic books, but it's still an interesting idea for the interplay between the two characters and how the symbiote is going to work with that. I also like the idea of using hard-hitting actors and actresses like Tom Hardy and Michelle Williams because despite the lack of cohesiveness to the characters on the whole, the gravitas that the actors, that, that Michelle... Williams and Tom Hardy bring means that whatever they've got to work with will be acted well. I like the idea of using kind of a SpaceX um, interstellar style villainous thing. You're kind of getting a whole aspect of Lex Luthor kind of quality behind it all. I like the ideas that they're bringing to the table. And for what it's worth, the CGI with the direction that they went for the CGI wasn't as awful as I thought it was going to be. So again, there's lots of things to like. I, the, but none of the execution comes together to bring it into a good cohesive film. And so the whole film suffers. The biggest thing that makes this movie rough is the fact that they tried to take R-rated material and make it PG-13. And you can tell that's what they did, and it and it just hurts the coherence even more. So there are things to like about this movie, and I had fun. I saw it in IMAX, uh, thanks to A-List. I saw it in IMAX, studio was packed, the audience was having a good time, and that, of course, fed into me having a better time than I probably would have had otherwise. But I cannot really bring myself to fully say that the movie was worth it. And I struggled. I was uh, Tim and I were texting back and forth over the last couple of days about this movie. And I was really struggling with where I wanted to land on it. And at the end of the day, I'm coming with, I'm coming with it to a 2.75 out of 5. There's, there's enough in there to have really good, likable things. But the movie just doesn't hold itself together to give you anything that's better than the sum of its parts. It's better than okay. Cannot truly say that I liked it. However, I will be honest and say I'm not sorry I watched it. So, And I'm not sorry I watched it in IMAX. Mainly because, strictly speaking, I didn't pay for it. <laughs> what do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. Yeah, this movie was annoying, yet I really enjoyed Venom. And I enjoyed Venom's role play with Eddie Brock. I enjoyed Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock. He just brought an interesting performance to uh, an otherwise poorly scripted film. I didn't like the bad guy. Uh, I think the bad guy didn't come across as evil enough. If he was a better character, possibly an even better actor, and if the script was better, it would have been nice to see a villain play such a larger role in, in the film, because the cast list isn't huge for this movie. It's relatively small. So I have a feeling other things happen in the film to make the audience hate the guy more, 
And I think other things happen in the film to make the audience fear Venom more. You never get a sufficient character arc for Venom, who suddenly decides to be an anti-hero and ends up taking a liking to Eddie and planet Earth. So you, there's not a sufficient character arc for Venom to go from this villain who you can't trust to someone who maybe you can kind of trust, but maybe they're in it for themselves or it's in it. And then all of a sudden now it's a it's an anti-hero that will only eat the heads off of bad guys. If that was fleshed out more, I think this would have been a better movie. I think if it didn't take an entire hour to set up the character of Venom, it would have been a better movie. I also think if the movie was R-rated, it probably would have been a better movie. Because I have a feeling it was probably shot to have an R rating, and they had to go and do reshoots to make the movie make sense uh, with a PG-13 rating. Overall, though, I had a good time. I was struggling between a 2 and a 3 because I did enjoy it. So I'm going to land on a 2.5 out of 5. It's a decent movie. If you want to go see it, it's worth checking out. Um, I think knowing now what you're getting yourself into, you might like it more the second time around, but only 65% of it is mildly entertaining. I am landing again on 2.5 out of 5 for Venom. Right on, right on. All right, that brings us to the end of the movie segment for this week. Next week's movies, officially theater movies are going to be Bad Times at the El Royale, Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween, and First Man. So again, combined with those other movies, we got six movies, so there's again no bonus segment for next week. And I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners Cries of Solace you can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both slash Cries of Solace as for us we are of course the SLS cast and you can find us at SLScast.com you can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com you can follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast you can follow me this is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345 you can of course come up with an information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories if you'd like to support the show please head on over to patreon.com and check us out there as for me this is matt and thanks to lady gaga i get to say this i think tolerance and acceptance and love is something that feeds every community take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh there we are, monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.